Well, I'd like to say I've been looking forward to this sermon, but that would be a lie. I walk in this morning thinking, you poor guests who've come here on Blossom Valley weekend, and my heart just goes out to you right now. <laughs> okay, that, that's a little bit heavy. Not, not quite that bad. It won't be that bad. But here it is. Actually, guests or not, I'm thinking there's some of you who, when we go through the passage today, you're going to be so engaged. You're going to be so excited. Because this is a passage you've thought about, you've heard about, you've read about, you've wondered about, you've had arguments about. And you're going to be like, well, maybe on the edge of your seats. I can't promise that. But you're going to be engaged. And there's going to be other, and, and then at the end of the sermon, you're going to think, oh my goodness, he didn't talk about this, he didn't talk about that, he didn't talk about this. Then there's going to be others of you who are going, Oh my goodness, when is this ever going to end? I have no idea how this is relevant to my life. And, I, and so here's my challenge this morning, to somehow hit in the middle. Not to leave you all dissatisfied, you understand, but to leave today thinking, okay, there's room for more conversation. There's room for seeing how I'm going to do my best that this is a passage that's relevant to us, encouraging, challenging. And so I'm just going to ask for grace as we go through this this epic passage, Mark chapter 13. I normally try to think long and hard about my intro, but today I decided in the interest of time, we're just going to dive straight in. You all, you all right with that? All right, to help you with that, I printed an insert. It's in your bulletin. So if you don't have a Bible, I do encourage you to pull that insert out and to follow along. You can make notes maybe in the margins, but in particular to follow along because we're going to spend some time just walking through that passage, Mark chapter 13, today. As we get into it, let's pray. Jesus, I am thankful for your words. And I'm thankful this morning that you've challenged us uh, in a lot of different ways today. And now, through Mark 13, you have a word for us today. I pray that you would just guide our hearts and our minds to be open to you and what you have to say. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been traveling through Mark for quite a while. And uh, if you've been around uh, Erickson Covenant for a while, you know we've been in Mark forever. In fact, we've taken some breaks and done other, other uh, you know, series just to break up the, the, the you know, but we're going to finish this year, I promise. Actually, we're going to finish by uh, late June. Um, but uh, you know that, that we've been proceeding through it. And in the Gospel of, of, of Mark, uh, we've just come through a big section, chapters 11 and 12, that were all centered around the temple this marvelous, expansive worship center of the Jewish people. From the moment that Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, right at the start of chapter 11, that's when he rode in on that colt, and people are like waving branches and stuff, Palm Sunday. Um, from the moment he arrived, and he's been in and around the temple in these two chapters, chapter 11 and chapter 12, everything that we've read, everything that we've heard, has been in and around the temple. It's been like he's a king on an inspection tour good way to think about it, actually. It's like he's a king on an inspection tour, and Jesus wasn't happy with what he saw. As a result of what he saw and what he didn't see, most of Jesus' teaching and actions in chapter 11 and 12 warn about judgment. A soon-coming judgment on the religious leadership and the inevitable destruction of the temple itself. And now, at the start of chapter 13... As Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple, one of the disciples, he, he marvels out loud at what he sees, at the temple's impressiveness and beauty. He says, look, teacher, what, 
massive stones. What magnificent buildings. Now, this isn't just the country fisherman from up north, which he was. Uh, this isn't just the country fisherman from up north kind of gawking at the big buildings. They may have done that, but that isn't really what's going on here. This temple precinct, the whole, the whole structure was renowned. It was regarded as, some people regarded as the most beautiful buildings in the world. It was without a doubt the most spectacular, the most significant structure within hundreds of miles, and it formed the spiritual heart of the Jewish nation. Everyone respected it. Even the Romans who eventually destroyed it were loath to do so. They, 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 there was lots in the writings of how they, they tried and tried and tried not to take it to that point. When Jesus looks at these buildings, he immediately kills what I say the tourist moment. I mean, they want Jesus to stand back and go, wow. And Jesus says, you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. <laughs> that killed the mood. Now, if we've been reading Mark, if we've been reading along in Mark so far, um, we aren't altogether shocked by this pronouncement of doom. Jesus has cursed a fig tree um, as a as a, a, a sign of judgment coming on a fruitless people. That's back in chapter 11. He enacted the judgment on the temple when he flipped over tables and drove out animals out of the court of the Gentiles. Jesus even told a story which everyone understood about how God was going to bring judgment on the religious leadership for their rejection of Jesus. That's the parable of the tenants. And over and over again, Jesus warned of judgment that would come and he called them to repent in order to avert the disaster. He called them to repent and follow him, that if they would persist in rejecting him and, and, and going up against Roman violence, they would suffer. And so he called them to follow him, called them to repentance. But his disciples, uh, who uh, we know aren't overly quick to pick up on what's always going on, they're floored by this news. And they must have thought about it as they walked out of town and eventually got to the Mount of Olives which sits overlooking the temple because four of them, when they sat down, they crowded in close to Jesus to ask him more. Picking up in verse 4, Peter, James, John, and Andrew this time ask, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? You hear those two questions? When and what will be the sign? And Jesus sets out to answer them both. When will these things happen and what will be the warning sign? What will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? And so here in chapter 13, Jesus gets explicit about the coming judgment on Jerusalem, in particular on the temple. And why does he do that? He does it to prepare his followers for the troubled times ahead. Everything Jesus says from here on in chapter 13 is designed to prepare them to live as his witnesses and as his people through the coming troubles. Everything he says is designed to help them, to prepare them, so they know how to live, what to do in the troubles that are coming. We need to hold on to that as we go into this passage to know that everything Jesus says now is designed to help them, to prepare them for what's coming. So this morning we're going to walk through these words of preparation by Jesus, remembering that he's answering their two questions and, and then, you know, he's got some extra stuff to say because as usual, Jesus has more to say than just what they're asking. We've seen him do that lots. They want to know the timing of, of the events and Jesus wants them to know how they are to live as his witnesses now and through the troubles that are coming. 
And so for starters, Jesus begins by telling them what will not be signs of, of this coming destruction. The signs that the temple is about to be destroyed. And so in verse 5 to 13, let's read it. Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. You will hear wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. This is the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what you're going to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father's child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. First off, Jesus prepares his followers for the tough times that will come because they follow him. This will be no picnic, Jesus says. You need to stand strong. Over the next few decades, Jesus says, crazy things are going to be happening. You're going to be getting into a lot of trouble because you follow me. People are going to claim to have God's anointing and authority to lead his people, particularly uh, to lead his people in deliverance against Rome. Wars will be happening all over. Earthquakes erupting. Don't get confused, Jesus says. These are not signs that that temple is about to be destroyed, about to fall. These are more like early contractions of a mother who's going to be giving birth. These are the birth pains only, not the baby itself. Jesus wants them to be on their guard so that they're not taken by surprise by the trouble that they get from their association with him. You're going to be hated, Jesus said. People are going to despise you. They're going to reject you. Even your own family is going to turn against you. And Jesus is warned about this in lots of other spots. You're going to be hauled in front of the authorities, just as I was, Jesus said. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. God's Spirit will fill you and give you everything you need when you need it. That must have been huge encouragement. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Before he can even begin to answer the question about timing and warning signs, Jesus wants them to be prepared for the regular troubles that come from following him. And he doesn't want them to think that persecution, trouble, resistance is somehow a sign of the end. No, Jesus says, no, that's actually just part of following me. That's just the facts. It's what it's like being a Jesus follower. And as you read on, obviously the life of Jesus and how they treated him, but you read on in the early story, the book of Acts, that's the fifth book in the New Testament, and it tells the story of the early church. This is exactly what happens. All these things mentioned is exactly what's going on. And in fact, the persecution of Christians, particularly in Jerusalem and Judea, ended up being a key way that the good news about Jesus left Jerusalem, left the surrounding area, and began to spread to other nations so that people from all nations could come to know Jesus. So before we go on, I want us to pause here for a reality check. Following Jesus will bring trouble into your life. Following Jesus will bring trouble into your life. Do you know that? Don't get me wrong. In so many ways, following Jesus is going to make your life better. 
It will. As you experience freedom from sin, as you, as you begin to have God infuse your life with His purpose, as you, as you begin to explore and experience this, this, uh, open relationship with God where you can, you can come to Him at any time and, 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 and pray and receive, receive the Word and just to know that God loves you. You're gonna receive healing from past wounds and, and the power to forgive others. An incredible thing considering what some others have done to you. The power to forgive. You'll see changes that will, will, will begin to happen in your relationships, in your, in your marriage, in your friendships, in your workplace, in your relationship with your kids. You'll begin to experience hope and joy and peace. This is all true. But if anyone thinks that following Jesus is a bed of roses, didn't notice the crown of thorns that got jammed onto Jesus' head. Following Jesus will bring trouble into our lives. It means that you can no longer just stand aside when people are belittled. You can't stand aside when women are mistreated, even just in what people say, what the guys say. It means you can't just shrug off gross injustice or racial prejudice. It means that there'll be people who won't want to do business with you so much anymore because you're not so willing to cut the corners. Right? It'll be people that aren't willing to hang out with you so much anymore because you suddenly don't want to just go get hammered every weekend or get high. It'll be the kind of trouble that begins to happen because you begin to stand up for what's right and you begin to serve those in need and all of a sudden, there's people who resist that. You know that. There's people who come up against you on that. Now, I'm not talking about becoming ignorant and rude. We, don't know, we do not need any more Christians out there claiming to do what Jesus wanted and being stupid about it. Do we? No, we don't. Right? We, we, we're not talking about being ignorant and rude. And, uh, no, that, that's not what Jesus was about. We're talking about people who are saying, I'll lay my life down for this. I'll sacrifice myself for this. I'll love you and I'll serve you. And I'll, I'll, I'll march to a different drum and I'll make less money. And I'll prioritize myself differently. And if there's trouble that comes from that, that's okay because that's what it means to follow Jesus. You know, we live in a bit of a bubble in North America, in Canada, in Creston, right? And we can, we can have lots of troubles. Don't get me wrong. I know some of you coming to faith in Jesus has caused family tension. I get that. And there's been, there's been struggles that have happened in your life right here, right now. But we need to remember that there's people all over the world. There's young girls coming to faith in Jesus in a Muslim family and experiencing great and terrific troubles because they've decided to follow Jesus. If there's young men who come to know Jesus in an atheistic Chinese family and they experience incredible hardship because of the decision to follow Jesus. And we're often kind of uh, ignorant to that. We don't recognize that. Jesus is trying to say to his disciples, look, following me is no picnic. There will be trouble in your life because you've decided to follow me. And he doesn't want them to be caught off guard by that. Because it would be so easy for some of us to think, what? Why is this happening? I've come to follow Jesus and, and, now, and now my mom won't talk to me anymore. Or I've come to follow Jesus and I lost my job. Or I, I've come to follow Jesus and all of a sudden those people that were my support no longer will talk to me. I've come to follow Jesus and all of a sudden I'm feeling more conviction or more challenge or I'm feeling worse about things. And, and you think, what? Jesus says, look, I don't want you to be caught off guard by the troubles that come, by the resistance you face. You just want them to misinterpret what happens as some sign of judgment or some, 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 something that they've necessarily done wrong. 
in particular for his disciples, he doesn't want them to misinterpret these struggles they're experiencing, which are part of the normal Christian life, as a sign that the end, the temple judgment is happening. So stay strong. Stand strong, Jesus says. Be my witnesses. Don't be afraid. The Spirit is in you. That's what Jesus opens up with. But then, then Jesus says something will happen. And the warning sign, it's the warning sign you've been asking about. And when you see that sign, Jesus says, then you run. Listen to this, verse 14 to 23. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, it's a quote, we'll get to it, standing where it or he does not belong, let the reader understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Judea is the surrounding area around Jerusalem. Let no one on the housetop go down, enter a house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, the deliverer, the person that will help us fight against Rome, will save us from this trouble, or look, there he is, do not believe it. The false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. Jesus now takes their original questions in reverse order. He tells them first about the warning sign. The sign that will come that this destruction of the temple that he said will happen is imminent. And then he links that with the decisive action that he wants them to take, which is quite simple, get out, run, flee. In order to do that, Jesus uses a stock image from the prophet Daniel, this abomination that causes desolation, which indicated an event or a person who will do something so horrific that the city of Jerusalem and the temple itself will be rendered desolate. This is an image that have been used multiple times in the history of Israel and the, the people uh, of God. It's an image that had been used by other writers. And now Mark, the gospel writer here, he even inserts a little commentary, kind of underscore Jesus' words and says, let the reader understand. Do you get this? Notice this. What is this abomination that causes desolation? As you can imagine, there are a few options that have been suggested. I am not going to take you through those options. Some of you might be quite committed to those options. I'm not even going to, it wouldn't be profitable for us to go through all the options today. What I'm going to do is suggest what I think are the two best options, and you may think they are terrible options. But nonetheless, here are my two best ones. It could be a bit of both. First, the abomination causes desolation is when the Roman armies appear around Jerusalem intent on crushing them. This happened in AD 68 when the armies of Vespasian and his son Titus surround the hills of Jerusalem. And you may be thinking, but if the armies surround the hills and now I run, now I just run into the arms of the army. Well, that would be true, except historically, the army comes, ready to move in and destroy, and then news reaches Vespasian that Nero has died, and so then the armies all withdraw. They return in two years, lay siege, and utterly destroy Jerusalem. Now, this is a plausible interpretation. You wouldn't see it so much from Mark, and I get that. I'm drawing in Luke's gospel. In Luke, where he relays, based on Mark, so Matthew and Luke take Mark's story here that we're looking at today, and they kind of beef them up a bit for their books. And, and when Luke relays this story, he doesn't even reference Daniel's abomination. 
Not explicitly. This is what Luke says when he says the same verse. He says, when you see, he simply says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you will know its desolation is near. Do you hear the echo? The echo's there, but not specifically. It's like he just, he just swaps the phrase out to make it really explicit. So, it could be that Jesus is saying, that's the sign. When the armies come, your head's up, it's time to leave. That's possible. But I actually think there's a second, a stronger option. It could be both. Uh, I'm all right, all right with that. But um, a second stronger option. You see, in the later 60s, in the 80s, 60s, Jerusalem was absolutely torn apart by warring, internal warring factions. Different groups lobbying for control of Jerusalem. And it all had to do with who was going to be the one to deliver the people of God out of the hands of the Romans. This is all these references to false messiahs, false prophets. And it was absolutely torn apart. If you read Josephus' work and, and, and some, some of the other stuff, uh, it, was, it was just crazy during the 60s. And, oh, sorry, different 60s. Um, and, and so here we are, toward the end of the 60s, and, and um, the Zealots, a fanatical group called the Zealots, which you may have heard of, they, have, they, they managed to gain the upper hand. They took over the temple and they committed absolute atrocities in the city and in the temple itself to the priests, killing the high priest himself, slaughtering the high priest and many of the other people, their, their enemies, uh, leaders from other, other factions. Even Josephus, the great army commander uh, turned historian, uh, he's the one we get our best historical information on the destruction of Jerusalem from. He dates the downfall of the J- Jewish state to the day, this day, a day, in February, AD 68, when the zealots slaughtered their high priests and other leaders, mocking their corpses, and then casting them over the wall of Jerusalem without burial. This was an abomination through and through. And these guys went all through the temple. They went into the Holy of Holies. They, they, just, they just rampaged the whole thing. The Jews, Josephus said, quote, beheld their high priest, the captain of their salvation, butchered in the heart of Jerusalem. Of course, as Christians already knew, their true high priest, Jesus, had already been butchered in the heart of Jerusalem. But here these zealots, they continue to desecrate the temple and the city, committing abomination after abomination, abomination, which did render the temple unusable, profane, you could say, desolate. Well, whether or not we can exactly nail down what this abomination that causes desolation was, these followers of Jesus would know what it was. Uh, There wouldn't be any mistaking it for them. Jesus is saying it to his followers, and what he's saying is very clear, that when that happens... When that abomination takes place, it's time for you to run. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. I want my followers to leave so they can live and continue to be my witnesses. And and he wants them, I think he's especially strong in this because he doesn't want them to be confused or dissuaded by the many voices that will be around them promising that this will never happen to Jerusalem, that God will save the day, that, that if they would just be faithful, that they would just stand strong at that point, that, that somehow um, God would win the day and the Roman armies would push back and everything would be okay. And what Jesus is saying to them is, no, at that point, it's way past deliverance. And you've got to get out because destruction is nigh. And that's why Jesus finishes this little section with that alert. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. I need a glass of water. I guess I left it. Can you get me a glass? Thanks. Everyone with me so far? 
just nod. We are going to have, uh, if we got time, oh man, we'll see. Question and answer. Uh, we'll see how we, we go with this. I'm doing my best. You realize there's a lot of material here, right? Okay. So remember, Jesus answers the second question first. What will be the sign, what will be the warning sign this is about to be fulfilled? It's this abomination which they'll know about and they should run. But now Jesus wants them, he wants to help them interpret the events that will unfold. Thanks, Christine. I want you to picture this. They've heard the warning. So Jesus' followers, thousands of them, flee Jerusalem, which we know from history they did. We know that Christians got out in time, for the most part at least. Uh, and they're going to watch from a distance, maybe not literally, but you know, as news comes in, they're going to watch as their beloved city, their home, God's city, is laid waste through siege and warfare. And as the news comes in, how are these followers of Jesus to understand the decimation of their great city? How are they to interpret the absolute destruction of their temple, the place that had formed the spiritual center of Israel for so many generations? Here's how. They're to interpret it as God's judgment for how they've rejected Jesus. And God's vindication of Jesus and his followers as the true and faithful Israel. Let's see how this plays out in the next couple of verses, verses 24 to 26. You can hang with me. Jesus is going to use some Old Testament references to draw in. They're kind of weird to us, but uh, it, it, it apparently helped them. But for us, it's hard work to understand. We have to really listen. So here Jesus goes. But in those days, following that distress, what distress? The distress he just talked about when the armies surround or the zealots take over, this crazy stuff's going on, and they have run. They have abandoned Jerusalem. In those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken, quoting two passages in Isaiah. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. We need to unpack this for a little bit because it's crucial we understand this in, the, in light of the whole chapter to really understand what's going on. So first, this reference to sun being darkened, moon not giving light, uh, stars falling, heaven shaken. Here's what Jesus is doing. To help his followers understand the Roman destruction of Jerusalem as an act of, well, inevitability because of the way they were going, but to understand it in particular as an act of God's judgment, Jesus draws in other prophetic passages, in this case, Isaiah 13, Isaiah 34, where the fall of Babylon and other nations are announced in the same way as the sun being darkened, moon not giving light. That's the quote. This sun, moon, stars language is a typical standard prophetic description for what we would call an earth-shattering, history-changing event, using all of this cosmic imagery to say, this is, this is a God thing, this is a, this is a history thing. And when the people of God heard this prophetic description from Jesus, they're given the tools to understand what's going on when they see what's happening to Jerusalem. Because how do these earth-shattering events actually happen? How, do the, how does the heavens being shaken and stars falling from the sky actually look on the ground? This is how it looks. Like a foreign army who lays siege, defeats, and destroys. 
That's the standard way that God has brought judgment to his people before. And that's exactly what's happening before their eyes. And Jesus wants his followers to understand that when the Roman armies do come and lay siege to Jerusalem, which they did, and when they did destroy it, as they did in AD 70, it was this act, this earth-shattering, history-changing, epoch-ending event of God's judgment. It wasn't just that they lost a war. It wasn't just that they didn't have the right army commander, that this was an act of God. And he wants them to see that. And that's why he uses these Isaiah passages. Jesus flows right from this Isaiah reference directly to a reference from Daniel 7. At the time, people will see Son of Man coming in the clouds of great power and glory and send out his angels or his messengers to gather people from all over. This is from a very important passage in Daniel 7, which we need to take a moment to read. So in Daniel 7, Daniel receives this uh, crazy vision of four beasts, each representing different kingdoms. Beasts, again, are stock prophetic imagery for kingdoms or nations or, or, or kings who have set themselves up against the true God and against God's people. So listen to this. It's the, this is the passage that Jesus draws his image from. And if this is unfamiliar to you, this is crazy stuff. So just listen. All right. As I, that's Daniel, looked... This is following his vision of the four beasts. Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. That's God. And so he's having a vision of God. And there's some description. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. He's from the beast. Um, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. Uh, the other beasts had been stripped of their authority and were allowed to live for a period of time. Yes, it's a weird vision. Um, some of you are thinking, I have dreams like that. Um, but this is something God gave him, not other things. Uh, so here's where, uh, need to listen carefully. Here's where we come to the important part that really connects, that was the context, really connects to what Jesus draws from. In my vision, this is Daniel, at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. So this is the son of man coming to his father, coming to God. He was led into his presence, in the presence of this court, the seated court, with all the tens of thousands uh, around him. He, this one like the Son of Man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the vision that Jesus is referring to. And it depicts this one like the Son of Man, Jesus himself, it's the favorite title that Jesus uses for himself throughout the Gospels, coming to God in victory over his enemies and given everlasting authority over the whole world. And this is what Jesus is doing with Daniel's vision. He wants his people, he wants his followers, the ones who have fled Jerusalem already and are now hearing about the destruction of Jerusalem to understand that what is happening is Jesus coming, the coming of Jesus in victory over his enemies, revealing him as the king of the whole world. 
This is what the Daniel illusion helps them understand. First of all, this coming in the clouds depicts Jesus' victory and vindication over the beasts who had tried to destroy him and had been trying to destroy his people. Jesus said that judgment would come, like in the parable of the tenants, but a lot of other places. And the destruction of Jerusalem that happened was Jesus' prophetic word coming true. He's vindicated as a true prophet when this happens, when Jerusalem is destroyed. Jesus warned his people to turn from the revolutionary ways. He warned them that if they continued to persist in going up against Rome, if they refused his path of peace, they would inevitably come into contact with Rome and they would be destroyed. He said it over and over again. He proclaimed the kingdom of God had come and that they needed to follow him. And he warned them again and again. This image of coming in the clouds of heaven is not a reference to the second coming of Jesus. And this is where I know some of you are right now going, what? This is not a reference to the second coming of Jesus. It's a reference to his coming in judgment. It fits the context. It explains how they would have understood it. And the vindication theme is not only that Jesus is vindicated as a prophet, as the king, but it extends to his followers so that when the temple is destroyed, it shows that the people were right to follow Jesus. They were right to listen to him. They were right to follow his way of peace. They were right to flee Jerusalem when the warning signs came. No matter what others thought, no matter how they had been rejected and treated and flogged and hated and despised and ridiculed and killed, they'd been right. They were vindicated as the true Israel the true people of God around Jesus himself. And then to follow up, this son of man coming to his everlasting kingdom shows the world that he's king in God by sending out his people as his witnesses into the world to gather men and women and children from every tribe and tongue and nation. And this is told in the passage in this huge prophetic language of angels being sent out to gather. But in the Greek, angel and messenger are exactly the same word. And I'd like to suggest that here what we have is Jesus sending out his messengers referring to the ongoing witness of the church which began in the earliest days and continues to today that Jesus through his messengers, through his church, through you and I still continues to gather his people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. Now why would Jesus use such a weird, cryptic set of passages to do this? Well really because it's only... what that, Oh, yeah. Well, the fact is, it's really weird and cryptic, or it's more weird and cryptic to us, not so much to them. This Daniel passage was a normal way that God's people, who'd been suffering at the hands of beastly empires, remembered in their suffering, in their persecution, that there would come a day when God would judge their oppressors and would vindicate them as the true people of God. And it helped them hold on to hope in those times when they looked around them and they couldn't see anything hopeful because it seemed like every time they turned around, somebody's being picked off, someone's being thrown to the lions, someone's being flogged, someone's business has been shut down. Every time they look around, it looks like we're losing. And the people of God have seen this passage as a reminder. They've taken comfort. And now Jesus is using it to help them understand this earth-shattering, traumatic, mind-numbing event as they watch their city, God's city, reduced to rubble. Jesus wants them to see it as a vindication of him, vindication of his people, and the inevitable result of their rejection of Jesus' way of peace. 
See what Jesus is doing? He wants them to see this horrific event as the end of an era, the final finish to a generation that had rejected Jesus, but the beginning of the launch of this worldwide witness where the king who is coming to his kingdom is the king and his people are now declaring that worldwide. And that's why Jesus finally, maybe you're thinking, that's for Tom, finally, this is when Jesus finally gets back to his very, the very first question they ask in verse 28, we'll read through the end. When will this destruction of the temple happen? What's the timeline for this? Jesus answers it very simply. It's going to happen within this generation. 40 years. And that's precisely what happened. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem around AD 30. And by AD 70, 40 years later, one generation, everything was over. Listen to Jesus as he brings his teaching to a close. I want you to hear him answer their question, but I want you to hear the urgency in his voice. He does not want his followers to be caught asleep at the switch. He doesn't want them to get this wrong. This is important. Here it is. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer's near. Even so, when you see these things happening, these things, all the stuff he's talked about, you know that it's near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. You cannot get clearer than that. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's his prophetic, the prophetic side of Jesus saying, look, I'm a true prophet. What I'm saying will happen. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. In other words, he's given them this time frame within 40 years, it's going to happen. But when exactly it happens in that, he doesn't know. Be on your guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch. Because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Jesus tells his disciples to be awake and watchful, to continue to live as his witnesses in Jerusalem up until the day they need to leave. He's given them a time frame, but he can't give them an exact date. He's given them signs to watch for, and it's imperative that they be alert and watchful so they don't get distracted and miss the signs of the coming judgment at the time they need to leave. You still there? I know that was a load. Okay, so we're going to get to Q&A in a moment. I think we're going to take a few moments for that. and you know, But I, I do think we have to ask, you know, if Mark 13 is all about followers of Jesus getting out of Jerusalem on time and responding appropriately, how is that relevant to us? Like, what are you going to leave here with here today, right? How is that relevant to us? Well, let me uh, chalk up some quick points and then we'll get to a, a Q&A real quick. First one is that trouble comes. I've already talked about this. I won't expand it more. That Jesus simply wants us to be prepared for the trouble that comes from following him. You know, I I thought of Bonnie Nolan today. I think many of you. That we need to know that when we step out in faith to follow Jesus, it does not mean everything's going to go right for us. It does not mean everything's going to be okay. There will be trouble that comes, especially when we step out in faith, when we do the right thing. When we make God our priority, troubles can come. But Jesus assures us that the Holy Spirit who is with us will give us everything we need to be his people, to be his witnesses in the midst of whatever trouble that is. 
That's the first one. The second one is that witness really matters. Witness is primary. I think it's pretty clear in this passage that witnessing to Jesus, that being the church and pointing others to Jesus is of primary importance. And when you read the whole passage, it's kind of a thread throughout. I think it's why Jesus tells them to stay till the last minute. And then when he tells them to run. He wants them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem. But then he wants them to continue to live as his witnesses. And so that's when he tells them to run. So when you take those two together, I think Jesus, this is the used wisdom, I think Jesus uh, prepares his people for the inevitable danger of witness, but he also gives them information so that they can escape, in particular in their case, when judgment falls. I think for us, it speaks to me of the wisdom we need to use in our witness. That as we get into people's lives, as we're pointing people to Jesus, we have to recognize that there's times when um, there may not be much more we can do. There may also be times when we're tempted, I think, like the, like the early Christians in Jerusalem would have been tempted to get on side with, with that revolutionary leader, with that charismatic person. There would be a temptation along the way to somehow adopt models of deliverance or models of healing or models of helping people move forward that somehow have, have, have separated from Jesus himself. And what he wants us to do is to use wisdom as witnesses and allowing the Spirit to speak through us. And the, third, the fourth thing, which maybe relates both to how we understand chapter 13 as well as our own lives, I think very simply through this, Jesus wants us to listen to him. He wants us to listen, to listen carefully. You know, chapter 13 has often been read in some pretty different ways. It's usually been read, I've got to tell you, as something entirely irrelevant to the disciples of Jesus' day or at least parts of it, been sort of sucked out of the context and made to apply to us, but not to them. It's been often read as something to do with a far future end time. I think Jesus wants us to listen more carefully than that. I really do. Just as he wanted the early believers to listen carefully. Because our witness and our life and the church, the world, depends on our attentiveness to the words of Jesus. Not this, just this chapter. I mean, it was kind of a single, real life and death scenario for, for, for these. But I think in general, this is true for us. That we need to be people who listen carefully. There's so much at stake here. So are we going to be those kind of people that are watchful, who are listening, who are ready to move when Jesus has moved, are ready to stay when Jesus says stay, because we know what really and truly matters. Okay, do we have a couple minutes for Q&A? Blossom Valley weekend. This makes the service longer, but we're going to take a couple minutes. So, um, Roger, can you do the, the honors of walking around with a microphone? Uh, for those who are get, visiting here, our guests here, we, we love to be able to hear you, and there's some of us that are more hard of hearing than others. And so, Roger walks around with a microphone just to pick up your questions and then be able to uh, relay them. So, any questions or thoughts this morning that you'd like to share regarding this passage? Hands up, Roger will come to you with a microphone. And if no hands go up, I'm going to take that as a sign that you guys just want to get on with, you know, Blossom Valley. But I wanted to provide an opportunity because I do recognize what I did this morning. So, any questions? Can you tell everyone your name while you're at it? Hi. Hello. My name's Vicki. Um, I'm a bit of a student of dual fulfillment of prophecies. Okay. And I'm yeah. just wondering how that would apply to this particular passage from your perspective. Great. Thank you, Vicki. 
Um, yeah, there's lots of examples of prophecy having dual fulfillment. I think for me, and I mean, we could talk more about this. I think for me, we just have to have really good reason for why there would be dual fulfillment. Or the thing about dual fulfillment or the thing about lots of prophetic fulfillment is usually a lot, a lot of these things aren't super clear until afterwards, right? And so we see the dual, for example, virgin will give birth to the son. We see it dual fulfillment, but we see it afterwards. We don't necessarily see it beforehand, like standing in between one fulfillment and the other. We don't necessarily see the dual. But um, I'm open to that, obviously. God can do what he likes. But for me, it would be what's going on in the scripture that would indicate that. And, and, and so for all of us, as we are reading, is there a sense, and I do recognize in this passage, there are certainly lots of brothers and sisters who've read the scripture a long time that would say, no, that really has something to do with a future date. For, for me, it has to do with, well, first, let's really understand what it meant for Jesus and for, for the people who originally received it. I think we do that for all of scripture. And then if there's real warrant to suggest that maybe there's something more going on, uh, I think we have to be really tentative about that, but I certainly think we need to be open to that. Does that help? Is that evasive enough? Um, I think we have to really let the scripture, uh, really let the scripture, uh, you know, speak uh, and, and interscripturally, uh, but really let it sit in its context and say, what, what does it mean for them first? So, yeah. Thanks, Vicki. Other questions or thoughts or comments? Anyone? You're going to let me breathe a sigh of relief that early? Okay. I know there's some of you that have questions. We can talk later. And uh, thanks, Raj. And thanks, Vicki, for your bravery in speaking out today. It's great. However you take this passage, Jesus spoke these words to his disciples. And what came next in Mark? Oh, okay, Brad. Yeah, I was just thinking about what you said um, yeah. with the signs, the blood, blood moon, and the stars falling. And, you know, I think a lot of us have heard different interpretations of that yeah, yeah. further down the road. And so when do we interpret Scripture as being literal? Because sometimes things, signs are literal, like they literally happen. And yeah. other times they're metaphoric. Like, so how, how, do, how do we interpret that? It's, Great question. It's going yeah. along with what you said because yeah. these were signs that would have happened, but yeah. we might not have recognized them as literal, literally yeah. happening. So. Yeah. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for that. I mean, part of it, so for this passage today, that when you read the way that that same verse is used, it depicts, it depicts the fall of Babylon when they were crushed by another, another enemy, another army. So what I use that as an example here. What you'll see through the prophetic... Um, books um, and writings, and then I include Revelation in this, is that symbols are often used to, to give us this kind of cosmic picture of what's happening on the ground. What's happening on the ground is often terribly normal, if I can put it that way. And so uh, in, the, in the case of Isaiah and other passages where they use this incredible cosmic language, that, that, we, can see that what, we can see what they were talking about, and then we can see what happened. What happened wasn't skies getting dark. What happened was armies coming in and flattening them. And so we understand, as we grapple with how prophets used um, this powerful symbolic language, we come to, we, I think the question of literal has more to do with 
literarily. Like, how, how, are, how are they meaning it? What are, what are they, why are they using it that way? And my, my feeling in Mark is that Jesus is trying to get their eyes to see the events that unfold, which are tragic and are terribly um, normal in the sense of Rome, once again, defeats another city, that to see it through a different lens, through the lens of, 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 of God, through the lens of prophecy, and to see it um, in, and, and understand it is this, this huge uh, God event, uh, earth-shattering event, uh, what's happening in, right, in, right in front of their eyes so they interpret it properly. And so that's a great question, and that's, that's part of Scripture study, is seeing, well, how, how is this used? You know, in the fall, against all better judgment, we're going to start the book of Revelation in the fall. Yeah, this was my warm-up. Um, we're going to start the book of Revelation in the fall and walk through it. And what we're going to see is, you know, a lion who's a lamb, Jesus. And we're going to come to understand that a lot of times these symbols are used to really tell us something about who Jesus is, about what's going on, about the character. But we're not meant to understand that this is a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. We're meant to know it's Jesus, who's human, who's the Son of Man. But there be powerful symbols used to, that, that, are, that are teaching us to see differently. And so in the scripture study, um, we have to remember that these prophets, these poets, these writers and, who heard you know, God speaking to them um, would, would often speak it in ways that were very powerful and very symbolic, but had a reference point in, in actual history. And we, need to just, we just need to keep going with that, keep dialoguing with that. I do think that people... Um, who have taken these symbols and interpret them very literally, you mentioned blood moons, that'd be a great example, of taking something very literally, that they often, what they've done is they've sucked stuff out of its original context and then made it apply where they want it to apply. As opposed to saying, well, what did it mean in its original context? Like, what, what was it there? And now how is that being used in this next context, for example, in Mark? How is it being used there? And to understand then, that Jesus is speaking to his followers. And of course, we as his followers read it out now, but we're secondary. His primary audience was his, was his people and then who Mark was giving this, this gospel to. So we have to understand what it meant for them in order to then understand what it means to us. And I know that's an ongoing dialogue that we need to continually hold with humility. Like, what is going on here? I, probably not fully satisfactory, but gets us gets us moving. Roger. Oh, it's on. It should be on now. All right. Um, so if there's, like, dual fulfillment of prophecies, um, and this one to the disciples is the destruction of Jerusalem, um, then, say, if it's a dual meaning to, for instance, for us today, the reaction is get the heck out of Dodge, and it's a very go now, mm-hmm. and it's kind of something that would be hard to see in hindsight and both recognize his prophecy in hindsight and fulfill the instructions, which is to get the heck out. Um, yeah, that's kind of... I think it's important to remember that um, what I feel, and, and you're going to hear this when we go through Revelation 2, it's, it, and, and whether there's dual fulfillment of prophecy, that's kind of one thing. But I want to say there's, there's powerful applicability. That's different than interpretation. Or different than, uh, yeah, Fulfillment, d- different than fulfillment. It's, it's saying there, there, there is a- applicability as opposed to saying this is what this was written for to warn me about X. As much as, as we hear God's word and we allow God's word to shape us, these are going to be profoundly applicable. But I think we make mistakes when we begin to apply them to ourselves before we first understand how they apply to them. 
or how it actually fit their context. Because we can so easily, especially with a passage that we really don't know what, you know, it's, it's fuzzy for us. It is so easy for us to assume that it must not have meant that for them. And it must mean something for us because we're self-centered in the way we read scripture. So we very easily make it about us. And, and it is about us in one sense, but to, to, to ignore that it was written first to, to them, that the book of Ephesians was written first to them, or the, the, you know, the first Peter was written to this early church, you know, when we ignore that and then make it immediately apply to us, we can really do some crazy stuff with, with, with the scripture across the board. So we have to remember that and then say, but it is applicable that God by his spirit gifted these 66 books to the church. And so there is a real applicability. Sometimes it's not as applicable, but through it, for example, in this story, I think we, might, we may recognize times in our lives where Jesus says, you know what? Um, I have to leave this situation. I'm no longer able to be in this situation. Maybe it's, I don't know how it would apply, but there may be times when we feel like God is saying, you know what? It's time for you to leave. Use that as an example. But I wouldn't see that as dual fulfillment. I would see that as applicability. And, and we know that the scripture is profoundly applicable to us, even if every single verse doesn't always directly apply. As a whole, what we hear in this story um, is that Jesus wants his people to be prepared for the troubles that come, to live as his witnesses in the troubles that come, to use wisdom in the troubles that come. And he said this in lots of other passages. In this passage, he's specifically talking to his people who are going to face incredible difficulty, giving them a vision for what's going to happen, how it's going to kind of unfold, so they can be, and we think of it, we're all inheritors of this first generation. This, this, as they overlapped, you know, as they were active, thousands of people came to faith in Jerusalem and surrounding area and the rest of the world, that, that their attentiveness to God's word, their attentiveness to the words of Jesus, the warnings of Jesus, have directly impacted our lives. Because their willingness to listen to Jesus, we now are here in some sense because of that. So, yeah, we work it through. We work it through. Okay, there'll be more, but I'm going to wrap it up. Um, and, of course, let's talk. We can, we can go around this. Uh, what comes next in Mark is a bunch of finals. His final meal. Uh, his betrayal, his trial, his suffering, his death. He's talked about this for a long time. And after that, his resurrection. He told them what was coming for his own life. He told them what would happen to him in the short term. They didn't really get it. And now he tells them, kind of gives them a sense at least of what's going to happen in the next generation as a result of the profound rejection they'll experience from their own family, their own people, uh, as they follow Jesus. And the question is, will they listen? Will they respond? Will they stand strong? Will they be the people of God where they are and through the troubles ahead? We know that they did, and we're inheritors of that. Following Jesus will bring trouble into our life. Yeah, Jesus will bring joy and purpose. I don't want to play the card too hard about the troubles. There'll be peace. There'll be courage. But the trouble's going to come too. And I think in this passage, we hear Jesus with a heart to prepare his people so that they're not caught off guard. They're not wondering what in the world is happening. But they understand that, you know what? I've signed on to follow Jesus. And that means there's going to be trouble. I need to be attentive to his words. I need to be ready to stay when he says stay, and I need to be ready to go when he says go, and I need to be able to understand what's happening around me, and I need to be eager to be his witness wherever he sends us, wherever he sends me. Because even though trouble will come, Jesus has promised 
that God will give us all we need to go through that trouble, to come through it strong, to come through it as vibrant, compelling witnesses to Jesus who went through all of this first and emerged victorious as the risen Lord. He's promised that through the trouble, not only will we be able to witness to Jesus, but we will help others come through the trouble. We will help others see Jesus. And it could be even that as people see us, stay strong, continue to point to Jesus, continue to be as people in the midst of trouble, as people witness that, they will come to see the life and the freedom and the joy and the purpose that only Jesus has for them. The question for us today is, are we still going to follow with all that in mind? As we conclude today, I thought we should sing the old song, I've decided to follow Jesus. Because I think it depicts for us, I'm going to move up to the guitar, I think it depicts for us this decision that no matter what happens, no matter what goes on, we're going to follow. And so I invite you as we close today to stand and to sing, I've decided to follow Jesus. I have de-